The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. Chapter 18. Washington, D.C. En route to a cabinet meeting in the back of her Secret Service-driven Cadillac, the President tapped a button on her laptop and Beth Randolph's face shone on her screen. Hello, Madam President. The Secretary of State, Beth Randolph's blonde hair was so meticulously sculpted by hairspray and gel that the President wondered for a moment if she wore a wig. How's your domestic agenda? The President sighed deeply and turned her gaze out the window, teetering. Sorry to hear that. I have some startling news for you. Ms. Randolph waited for the President to turn her gaze toward her, and then she dropped the rhetorical bomb. China's a democracy now. What? A democracy? Yes, actually a democratic republic with a constitution fashioned like our own. Without a bullet fired? That's impossible. It's true, answered Randolph. The president leaned toward the camera affixed on her laptop. My most favored nation status plan has paid off. Not exactly. Randolph opened her briefcase and pulled open a manila file with top secret stamped on it in red letters. China might not be our friend. I have here a letter from the new Chinese ambassador to the United States, Do Jinsing. It's lengthy, so I'll summarize it and send you a hard copy today. The leaders of the new government claim to be following the God of the Bible now. At hearing those words, the president flinched as if someone had just shot her in between the eyes with a dart. This was just too unbelievable. Their leaders will now govern in order to secure God-given rights rather than to secure their own interests and positions. They're cutting all ties with atheistic communism and embracing the ideals of a decentralized democratic republic. The primary aim of the central government was to provide for the common defense and to ensure that the God-given rights, at those words the president cursed, to life, liberty, and property were secure within its provinces. Oh, it gets worse, Madam President. They made the point that the greatest threat to liberty is immorality, which the government would help remedy by granting full freedom to all unregistered churches to worship and evangelize as they please. Margaret Brighton cursed again with even greater eloquence and passion. I can't believe it. They're digressing and we're progressing. They specifically mentioned their intention to outlaw abortion, euthanasia, and marital infidelity. They're outlawing adultery? Including homosexuality. The president gasped in utter disbelief. They encouraged all nations to follow their example and promised economic and political consequences for nations that allowed crimes against humanity to continue. Then came the clincher, Madam President. They compared our crackdown on abortion protesters to China's crackdown on the activists at Tiananmen Square three decades ago, for which China offered lavish apologies and compensation to victims. Oh, goddess above, the president's eyes shifted back and forth on the ceiling of her Cadillac, as if looking for a way out of the sharp iron clutches of a trap slowly clamping down on her. They've become a theocracy, said the president. A theocracy! I've requested a hearing with the ambassador as well as with the prime minister, but Mr. Jinsing tells me that the prime minister is much too busy establishing the foundation of their government to cater to our, uh, she cleared her throat, predictable attempts to manipulate them. Those are their words. He said that? Yes. The far right in America is going to like that, said the president. A documentary is coming out in time tomorrow written by a Mr. Josh Davis who extensively quoted Mr. Jinsing, said Randolph. Do you have a copy of it? They won't give me one, and Josh Davis won't return my calls. Send me what you have on the article and the author, Brighton answered. I'll email you a zip file. Tell Mr. Doa Jinsing that we will revoke his nation's free trade status if he does not apologize. Ms. Randolph shook her head back and forth. Mr. Jinsing came straight from a Chinese prison where he was being held as one of the leaders of the underground church. He doesn't have fingers, and he is paralyzed in his left arm from the beatings and the electric shocks they gave him. I doubt he will be intimidated. I will be meeting with him this morning, which is why I will not be present at your cabinet meeting. However, before we take a hard-line stance with Mr. Jinsing, we must first evaluate the blowback. 
China's leaders are threatening sanctions against nations that persecute Christians. They own so much infrastructure in Iran that Iran's leaders are publicly committing to execute Muslims who persecute Christians just to keep the Chinese happy. If China considers us to be a nation that persecutes Christians, then that can spell trouble for us. There's also the potential that a devastating financial crisis may transpire if things fall apart. What do you mean? China owns us, Madam President. They've been basically loaning us the money to buy from them for decades. If they called their loans, they could crush our economy overnight. We cannot afford to tick off China. I see. She chuckled and then mumbled, maybe the time is right to scrap the plummeting dollar and go to the Amero currency. What? Never mind, forget I said that. The cabinet meeting began with Ted Warnell, 72-year-old director of the NSA, giving his assessment of China's transformation. The president frequently chimed in with rants of frustration for China's careless digression. It's a new game board and we don't even know the pieces yet, Warnell complained. One of Cameron Weaver's young subordinates added, The author of the Time article that is coming out tomorrow about China just sold an article to the U.S. News & World Report that will be most malignant towards this administration. Apparently they have someone on the inside. Danny was careful not to look suspicious. He typed notes on his laptop as she continued. There's more to that story, Halucci said. I spoke to U.S. News CEO Ken Desmond this morning and the outcome was positive. The president smiled for the first time during this meeting at hearing those words. Cameron Weaver added, He's a social ideologue and a fan of yours, Madam President. I know he is, she said. Mr. Desmond realizes, said Halucci, that this is a national security issue and is committed to accommodate us. China is getting freedom of the press and we're losing ours, Danny Connor thought to himself. They got their constitution out of our dumpster. Not only are they pulling out of their contract with Josh Davis, but in the next few issues they're really blasting the whole reinvigorated militant evangelical movement. The more liberal Christian denominations are uniting in opposition to the more exclusive version of Christian fundamentalism, and they're doing an investigated piece on it. Weaver added, that'll help us get across to the public that we don't have a problem with the Christian faith, but rather only with violent extremists who have hijacked Christianity to promote their extreme right cause. Great. The president gave Halucci and Weaver a double thumbs up. Certainly some third-rate news service is going to print Josh Davis's story, Halucci admitted, quenching Cameron's enthusiasm. But we're developing a plan to neutralize its threat. We're preparing a memo on this Joshua Davis that makes Hitler look like Mr. Rogers. With some careful feeds to newspaper editors, Cameron added, we will inoculate the American people against the content before they ever see the article. The president nodded, destroy the messenger, render the message irrelevant. Precisely, said Weaver with his Hollywood grin. Hopefully, added the less optimistic chief of staff, Dina Halucci. This is good stuff, Danny. Josh's enthusiasm grew with every paragraph he perused of the notes Danny handed him. Real good. Remember, I have to stay anonymous on this, Danny reminded his friend as they sipped cappuccinos in Danny's apartment. Of course. Josh set down his whiskey cappuccino and leaned back in the dark blue corduroy recliner. Man, this is a huge story. Danny said, you know, if Brighton is as evil as I suspect, she'll stop at nothing to shut us up. There is no right and wrong for her, no conscience to check her ambition. Nothing's beyond her. She's dedicated her life to her leftist utopia, and she'll do anything to bring it about. Stop freaking out on me, Josh said, turning away from Danny. Paranoia is not becoming for a bureaucrat. Who's going to print it anyway? Danny asked. Josh looked up. U.S. News & World Report was going to print it, but they backed out for some reason. Oh yeah, I knew that, said Danny. It's in the notes from the last meeting. In the notes? Josh began to search for Danny's notes of the last cabinet meeting. What do you mean? The president pressured their CEO to back out of their contract with you. That witch? Josh Davis sat up in his lazy boy and thumped the notes he held in his hand. He gritted his teeth and held back a curse word for fear of offending his friend. Danny, I want you to consider giving this to Congress first. No way. I'm staying anonymous, Danny answered. Why would you pass up the historic opportunity to testify before Congress in the nation's most controversial impeachment ever? With your book deal afterward, you'd be set for life. 
Danny answered, I want to be anonymous in my testimony because I want to stay in politics. I have no aspirations for a Pulitzer like you, and I don't want to risk more of the administration's wrath than I already have. I'll find someone to print it, Davis said. They'll have to, out of fear that someone else will print it if they don't. Danny's eyes were focused in midair as if he were staring at a piece of dust floating in front of him. What is it, Danny? Josh was curious as to what had suddenly captivated his friend's thoughts. When Erdman updated us on the gun confiscation efforts at the last meeting, President Brighton said something that has bothered me ever since I heard it. She said, if we had a major terrorist attack, this would pass so much more easily. She said that? She said that terrorism would salvage their gun control efforts. Danny pursed his lips and looked down into the steamy hot cappuccino in his wide Starbucks mug. I just don't trust her, Josh. He took a sip. You keep talking like that, and I'm going to put some whiskey in your little Christian cappuccino. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, I'm not a religious fanatic, and this article is not partisan propaganda, Josh Davis practically screamed into his cell phone as he drove down the interstate. I wrote the China article in time that gave them more new readers than anything they've printed in the past year. I have no agenda except reporting the truth, Don. Why are you treating me like this? Truth? What is truth, Josh? The Newsweek magazine editor lectured. Journalists aren't the slave of your so-called absolute truth any more than they are the slaves of any self-appointed deity. We're slaves to an agenda, and don't act surprised, Josh. Margaret Brighton is friendly to this agenda, and we're not out to make enemies of heroes. Come on, Donnie, I know Pulitzer material when I see it. It's a witch hunt, the editor of Newsweek said, repeating what he had heard the president's press secretary say on television. I can't believe you, said Josh. Drop the Cameron Weaver spin and at least act like you have a sincere bone in your body. How dare you attack my scholarship like this when you haven't even read my article? Where's your integrity, Donnie? Are you a member of the president's spin corps or a journalist who'd leave all agendas behind in pursuit of the story of your life? Somebody's going to print this, and I'd rather give you a bite of the apple than one of your competitors. Sorry, Josh. When the CEO says no, the answer is no. Your article's a dividing knife in a nation crippled with violence. It's unpatriotic. We've got to stop this partisan animosity. That's exactly what the last magazine editor said, thought Josh with a troubled grimace. Are you reading that off some White House memo or something? What? Donnie said. That junk about my article being a dividing knife. Did you get that from the White House spin machine? What would make you think that, said the editor as he crumpled up the memo faxed from the White House. It just sounds real familiar. So should this, Don said before slamming the phone down against the receiver. Josh slapped his cell phone shut and ran his fingers through his hair as he passed cars on the busy interstate. He sighed deeply, troubled by renewed suspicions of government conspiracies. When he stopped at a red light at the bottom of the exit ramp, he opened up his laptop that lay in the seat beside him, turned it on, and cracked his knuckles with renewed determination. You think my article's tough on you, Madam President. Wait until they read the addendum. Forty-four Muslim warriors each received the same postcard in the mail the same week, as had thousands of others in the same region. But to them, the postcard meant much more than a buy-one-get-one-chicken-sandwich-free coupon. To them, the advertisement coupon was especially informative. A few small numbers and letters in the far left-hand corner informed them of the date and the particulars of their mission. Thirty airline tickets were purchased that same day from the largest airports in their region. Some were one-way, some were two-way, some were purchased through travel agencies, and others were purchased online. One of the faithful even cashed in his frequent flyer miles for the purchase. The fourteen who did not purchase airline tickets planned trips to population centers such as large malls. One planned a trip to an amusement park with his family. Another planned a vacation to Washington, D.C. to sightsee. They each were trained and existed solely for phase one of a grand mission, and the day of its execution neared. Barrett Lake, California Mohammed Kadif sat on his wicker chair in front of his small, battery-operated black-and-white television set that rested at an angle against the wall of the tent. After watching the conclusion of the debate in the Texas legislature, the Palestinian watched James Knight urge a vote for impeachment from the floor of the House of Representatives. 
Washington, D.C. If the representative from Wyoming does not remove himself from the microphone when his time is up, Speaker of the House McAvery spoke directly into his microphone, he will be forcibly removed by the sergeant-at-arms. You promised me that we could discuss the Texas Life Bill and the implications of that state leadership's steadfast commitment to protect the preborn. Knight's voice strained with emotion. You will be forcibly removed, and I will move for censure, Mr. Knight, if you do not cease and desist. This is your last and final warning. But, Speaker... Barrett Lake, California. We would have had a civil war, Mohammed Khadif commented, motioning to the television set. His colleague in the faith and brother in the flesh, Raja, who sat on the floor beside him, nodded solemnly. They are civil. That is at least one thing that is good about America. They spoke in their traditional Arabic tongue so that their fellow travelers in the tent beside them, fifteen illegal immigrants who had accompanied them from Mexico, couldn't understand them. That is hardly praiseworthy, Mohammed was fearful of allowing too much praise of an avowed enemy. He fixed his stern eyes on his brother. Even Satan feeds his children. I don't know if I like this black Christian or hate him, said Raja, referring to Knight. Raja's sharp facial features and deep-set eyes were energized with passion as he spoke, his thick dialect fit for his expression. He may help our cause inadvertently, Mohammed agreed, but he bleeds red like the others in the end. Praise be to Allah, breathed Raja solemnly as he had many thousands of times before. The field of America's sin is ripe for the threshing. I have wanted to speak to you about a sensation that we must transition more speedily to phase two of our plan. Raja shook his head. We cannot risk failure by acting prematurely, he said emphatically. This has all been thought out by men wiser than us, who have taken their security responses into account. I laugh at their border and airport security, Mohammed smiled sadistically. Why do you fret about security, Raja? Americans crack down on terrorism by punishing themselves, by destroying their own freedoms. Heightened security will not affect us in the slightest. Our warriors have nothing on their person that Americans' heightened security would even suspect of being related to an attack. Years of planning are at stake, answered Raja. We have but one swoop of the sickle with phase two, and we must not be careless. Raja glanced down at the locked suitcase that rested at his brother's feet. Mohammed rubbed the black curly beard that hung to his upper chest and looked deep into Raja's eyes. Raja, I'm going to propose something to you, and I want you to consider it. I will consider it, Raja answered. I have given this a lot of thought, and I want you to hear me out. This nation is split right down the middle ideologically. You have the rural communities that are anti-abortion Christians, mostly conservatives who admire leaders like James Knight and Henry Adams, men who want limited government and who despise the United Nations. A significant portion of these men would bring their troops home from Muslim lands if they could. These are men we do not greatly disrespect. Then you have the big cities that are full of pro-abortion, pro-homosexual communists, New World Order Democrats, and neoconservatives. Now where's the intellectual and cultural center of the left? Raja appeared confused. What's your point? Mohammed answered his own question. Three hours from where we are right now. San Francisco. Mohammed paused to grin. His fellow warrior for Allah, Raja, shook his head, predicting the conclusion of Mohammed's discourse and disapproving. Follow me, Raja. Think about it. California is the first American state to embrace what Americans call no-fault divorce that legalized divorce on demand without just cause. It's one of the first states to remove state restrictions on abortion. They were the first state to outlaw religiously motivated homeschooling. The city has the largest sodomite celebrations in the nation, so perverted that men have sex in the middle of the streets. They have the most liberal university campus in America right there, the University of California at Berkeley. They have co-ed dormitories, Raja, filled with fornication and sodomy. They have classes on pornography. Military bases are in the blast radius. Targeting their nation's capital would be more destructive to their economy and their ability to mount a defense, Raja fanned himself with his Arabic to Spanish translator book after their trek across the hot Baja desert sands. 
I know, I know, Mohammed lightly waved away Raja's protest. He had gone through it all in his head a thousand times. Raja, it comes down to what, or rather who, we're doing this for. If we're doing it for the Arab governments, then I agree that the District of Columbia is the best site. But if we're doing it for Allah, the ever-wise, all-compassionate one, he raised his hands heavenward. Wouldn't the Prophet want us to destroy the most perverse idolaters in not only America, but in the entire world? Think about it, Raja. If the Prophet were here today, right now, where would he strike? Would the Prophet expend his greatest resources on the strategic target that satisfied his political aim? Or would he go for the spiritual shrine of idolatry and abomination that offended Allah so? We only have one shot with the word. He made a subtle motion with his hands towards the suitcase beside them, purchased from a disillusioned Russian scientist six years ago at the cost of two million dollars. One shot! That's it! Phase two's only security risk is transporting this, he patted the suitcase, across the country by road, bus, or train. Our inside man in the nation's capital has warned us that they are on high alert due to the internal strife and gun confiscation program. That was not taken into account by those men much wiser than us. They are giving extra scrutiny to baggage, Raja. They have roadblocks around the capital for random checks for guns and ammunition. But San Francisco Bay is only a few hours away. Why do you propose this now? snapped Raja, irritated at his brother's proposal at such a late stage. Why did you not propose this in Mecca when we were in the multitude of counselors? Muhammad looked down with a hint of shame. I know this is the leading of the all-wise Allah, Raja. Trust me. This is the will of the Almighty. Washington, D.C. will be in shambles as it is with Phase 1. Yet we have absolutely nothing planned for one of the most wicked cities in the entire world. My plan will remedy that oversight. Muhammad unscrewed the top of his canteen, dropped in a tablet that purified river water, then closed the top and shook the canteen vigorously. He looked at Raja's downcast countenance. Raja, it's not too late for you to participate in Phase 1. But this, said Muhammad, patting the 125-pound suitcase on wheels beside him, this has San Francisco written all over it. We will all die in the same battle of holy jihad, even if not on the same day. I'll stay with you, said Raja. We'll be basking on the shores of paradise with seventy-two black-eyed virgins by the time they figure out what happened. San Diego, California Raja handed the lady behind the counter five $100 bills to open his bank account. In California, many banks had long been advertising that they did not require American identification for customers to open a bank account. American citizens were required to have social security numbers to open a bank account, but not illegal immigrants. Banks further promised that they would not turn in any customers to government authorities if they were discovered to be illegal immigrants. California was crawling with illegal immigrants from Mexico who made their tax-free living picking fruit and vegetables on California's farms, providing cheap produce for American businesses. Banks capitalized on this untapped source of income, having adjusted the state and local ordinances in their favor. Here's your money order for $389.95, the short blonde woman handed him his money order. Here's your account number. She handed him his temporary checkbook and pointed to a seven-digit account number on the front of his first check. These are your temporary checks. I have some handouts for you on other services. In which language would you like them? English is acceptable, he said, returning her smile. He received his materials with a courteous thank you and walked hurriedly out the revolving glass door to Muhammad, who was waiting outside the bank. Did you get it? Ta-da! sang Raja in a melodic tone as he held up the money order. Now to the rental car agency. They donned their backpacks and walked on the sidewalk with their money order and their forged Mexican driver's licenses in hand. Muhammad laughed. How did this nation of fools survive this long? Allah lets our trees grow tall for the cutting. He is ever wise. Los Angeles, California. 80 miles per hour in a 45? How can the speed limit be 45 miles per hour here? Raja, who sat in the driver's seat of their rental car, was furious. It is, 
The officer wore the stereotypical silver sunglasses and was in no mood to be merciful today. The signs are in English and Spanish. I can read both fine, sir, but this is a highway. A highway under construction. What construction? Raja looked around for any evidence of construction. You should have read the signs, sir. Driver's license and insurance, please. You have got to be kidding me! Raja shouted disrespectfully in the officer's face, and the officer took a step back and placed his hand on his holster. Raja sighed, rubbed his brow wearily, and glanced over at Muhammad. Driver's license and insurance, please, the officer calmly ordered again. Muhammad reached into his glove compartment, pulled out both, and handed them to Raja. Raja delivered them to the officer with an exaggerated sigh through which he tried to demonstrate his hurry to the patient officer. Got the driver's license just last week, and I purchased a temporary insurance policy when I rented the vehicle. The officer stared at them for a few seconds. Any other forms of identification, Mr. Khalil Risa? No, sir. Raja wiped away nervous sweat from his brow. The officer grimaced disapprovingly before walking back to his car, which was parked, blue and red lights flashing behind their sleek metallic blue two-door Nissan. Uh, sir? Mohammed stuck his head out of the passenger window and raised his voice at the officer. My friend is in a hurry and we need to leave. He's got a plane to... Not until I'm done, the officer said without looking back. How long will this take? The officer ducked into his car without answering the question. Twenty minutes later, the officer returned. Sir, I am sorry, but we must be on our way. I'm having a difficult time verifying your address, Mr... Uh, what is your name again? Kali... Uh, Kali... Khalil. Raja's halting, stuttered response increased the officer's suspicion. And your last name? Risa. The officer did not appear satisfied with Raja's answer. Raja glanced nervously at Mohammed, and then Mohammed leaned forward so that he could make eye contact with the officer. His name is Khalil Risa. May we leave now? The officer removed his shades and studied Raja's countenance. And where are you from, Khalil Risa? I'm a businessman. The jet is my home. If you don't mind, sir. Where were you born? Palestine. Where are you headed? Mohammed spoke up before Raja could answer. Is this important, officer? We don't have time to chat. We must leave now or we... I'm catching a flight to Virginia, Raja interrupted his friend. If we can get to the airport in 35 minutes... Do you have any evidence of your airline ticket? asked the police officer. No, sir, we do not. We intend to sign in at the kiosk at the airport to retrieve our tickets. The officer shook his head and opened Raja's driver's side door. I'm afraid you won't be going anywhere. What are you talking about? Step out of the car and place your hands on top of the car. Raja stared at Mohammed in a state of shock, and Mohammed's eyes reflected his fear. Mohammed felt the weight of the 9mm semi-automatic gun on his right hip and was struggling with whether he should put it to use just yet. Go ahead, Khalil. Do as he says, Mohammed instructed his younger brother. We'll catch another flight. Raja got out of the car and put his hands on the hood of the car as the officer ordered, trying hard to keep his anger restrained. Mohammed reached under his shirt and pulled out his holster and handgun and shoved it under his seat as he opened his door and stepped out. He locked the door and shut it. He looked over the hood of the car as the officer frisked Raja. You know this is racial discrimination. I've got friends in the media and they're going to love this. The officer who was patting down Raja as the passenger spoke concealed his concern and continued his search. The only thing a white police officer in L.A. feared more than an injury from a bullet was being accused of racism by a non-Caucasian. The officer remained calm as he handcuffed Raja. You're being arrested for false identification. Your IDs are forged. That's not true! The officer walked to the front of the vehicle and beckoned Mohammed toward him. Place your hands on the hood. How long are we going to be in jail? asked Raja. Before the officer could answer, Mohammed responded in a mocking tone. Long enough for us to call our lawyer. Now how long is this jerk going to be suspended without pay after we take a couple million from his department? That's another question. The officer was silent as he handcuffed Mohammed. Mohammed glanced at Raja with a wink that calmed Raja's fears. The word will be there when we get back.
Raja stared at the trunk of their car wherein their most valuable possession was stored and hoped so. Phase two depended upon it. Thank you for listening to this reading from The Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020 and The Uncivil War of 2020, are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com. O Lord, turn us back to you. Forgive our sins and heal our land.